What's up, guys? Thanks for tuning back into the show. We've got Anya from Belcampo, who has become a very good friend of mine. Absolutely incredible. Every time I come out to LA, uh, I am treated with her presence and her wonderful meat. We're going to discuss regenerative agriculture. We're going to discuss the best ways to cook nose to tail, everything in between, all the meats that you don't know how, or maybe it's just me. <laughs> maybe it's just me that doesn't know how to cook anything but filet mignon or New York strip. And that's hopefully doesn't come across as some pompous dude who I only eat filet mignon. I don't mean it in that way, but um, yeah, I can't cook to save my ass other than the main cuts of meat. So we, we take a deeper dive into some of the lesser known cuts and just all the ways to utilize the wonderful grass-fed, grass-finished, regenerative meat that we consume and put into our bodies. And we dive into all different parts of the animal, how we get more collagen out of uh, the meat that we eat, even outside of just eating the standard bone broth, drinking the bone broth. There we go. And much more than that. So I'll make this quick. And of course, there's uh, many ways you guys can support this show. Number one, click subscribe. Never miss an episode again. Tell your friends about it, but better yet, leave us a five-star rating. That way the world gets to know with one or two ways the show has helped you out in life. Last but not least, check out our show sponsors. They make it absolutely possible. Today's show is brought to you by sportsbettingdime.com. If you're looking for odds and analysis of the sports, entertainment, or political world, check them out. You can get into the analytics and finer details of sports using their futures trackers, which cover every major league, so you always know who has the best shot of taking home the title. They also cover MMA, boxing, and have daily coverage of political odds updated on the regular. Head over to their news feed to get all the action today. Check it out at sportsbettingdime.com. We are also brought to you by Silent Mode. Silent Mode is a peak performance company aiming to help 100 million people reduce their resting heart rate by 5%, enabling happier, healthier lives. They believe the combination of music, science, and technology can create a new genre of mental fitness training, which can be practiced at home, at work, or when traveling. How do they do it? By providing access to guided mental fitness workouts delivered through a sensory deprivation device. This thing is awesome. Silent Mode records HRV and custom builds a workout program based on biometric feedback. So to summarize, this is for connected humans who want to improve peak performance. Silent Mode provides tools and techniques that empower the mind and the body. Finding your balance requires a proactive approach. It doesn't happen on its own. And they're here to power the go-getters who understand the importance of mental fitness. People who seek to optimize performance of the mind. Because healthy minds need workouts too. With the right tools and the right path ahead of you, finding balance is simpler than you think. This stuff is absolutely incredible. I've been using it for about six months now. Uh, I normally do the power down because I'm pretty good at getting gassed up. And this is something that absolutely can relax me and get me into a deep, restful place pre-sleep. And all y'all are getting a fat discount, 15% off the power mask and three months free of Breathonic subscription at silentmode.com slash KKP. That's S-I-L-E-N-T-M-O-D-E dot com forward slash KKP. Check all that out with my boys at Silent Mode. We are also brought to you today by PowerDot. PowerDot is one of the best recovery tools ever made. It improves muscle recovery. It can supplement strength training and effectively warm up the muscles to improve post-activation performance. It's also a natural pain reliever, blocks pain signals, and, and then promotes the release of endorphins. And it's phenomenal for injury rehab. And let's face it, I've had a ton of injuries. If you are in your late 30s and have done anything in life, it, odds are you're a little banged up. 
but it improves uh, the injury rehab through improving blood circulation and nutrients to improve recovery and activate muscles in a non-load bearing environment to fight muscle atrophy. That means your muscles won't shrink while you can't train. It's got smart recovery AI. It integrates with Strava and Apple health tracks your workouts and provides customized recovery programs based on your activities. And it guides you through each program from start to finish. They have in-app education in their newsfeed. You can learn from professionals and explore content that will help you become a better athlete. And there's a forum where you can connect with other PowerDot users and learn how they are getting the most out of their device. Athletes love it. Everyone from the UFC, Glory Kickboxing, Cycling, NFL, MLB, PGA, CrossFit, and way more. It is insane. And they're doing a huge deal. If you get the Pro Bundle, the Duo plus three extra set of pads, going to stimulate two areas at once and you'll spend less time recovering. That's that's the best deal in the business. You're going to save 25 bucks and an additional 20% off the whole thing with the code KKP. And you get a 30-day money-back guarantee. And I guarantee this is going to make a big difference, especially if you're grinding, still trying to grind through workouts and maximize everything. And you're worried about what supplements to take and how much sleep you're getting. Obviously, sleep's number one, but This is going to outdo a lot of other things because of the fact that it works with the central nervous system to increase oxygen and blood supply to the muscles where they are needed. So that's it. 25% off to all listeners with code KKP at checkout. Go to powerdot.com slash KKP, P-O-W-E-R-D-O-T dot com slash KKP. And last but not least, we are brought to you by Sovereignty. Sovereignty, for all y'all that know, makes Purpose, which is my favorite nootropic slash energy drink. And on the flip side of that, the yin to the yang, they've got their product, Dream. Dream is absolutely phenomenal uh, at getting you to rest. The deepest, best sleep you've ever had can be accomplished with Dream. It is a tasty little drink. They come in single serving packets, so they're perfect for when I'm traveling. Or if I've uh, you know had a little had a little fun with uh, some of the recreational things, it is a great way to calm the hell down and get myself back into a restful state. They've got a lot of good stuff in here, uh, very similar to Purpose in that they're using adaptogenic herbs and different amazing parts that are completely legal from the cannabis plant. And in this one in particular, they use CBN, which is very good for helping you feel drowsy and getting a restful night's sleep. In addition to many other things that are included in this product, you're going to love it. And I know you are, and they know you are. So one of the things that they're doing as they do with Purpose is the greatest money back guarantee of all time. And this only happens if you use the URL. So please use the URL, that way the podcast gets credit. But if you don't like the product, not only will they give you 100% of your money back, but you're going to get 100% of your money back plus the sleep supplement of your choice. So head over to HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N-T-Y dot C-O slash Kyle and grab my favorite product for sleep, Dream. Thank you guys. And let's continue on with Miss Anya. All right, we're clapped in. Anya, thank you for joining me via uh, online. <laughs> thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, tell us about your background. We we know that you're uh, you are one of the co-founders of Belcampo Meats out in really far northern California in the the great state of Jefferson. And um, I had an opportunity to meet you with a handful of awesome people out in LA at one of your three. You have three or four restaurants now. Five. 
five. Oh wow, blowing up. Well, when's the when's the well, next one coming? in COVID, so we're going the other direction, but they're getting I better. Gotcha. Okay, <laughs> phenomenal. Well, tell us about life growing up. Like, did you grow up on a farm? What got you into this? You know, I was actually born on a raw milk dairy in Bavaria. I'm not German. My parents lived there for 10 years um, just to their careers. My father was a scientist um, and did a bunch of study over there. So I definitely had early exposure to a lot of raw milk and being around cows. But I was tiny. You know, we moved when I was three. Um, So I don't really think that that was a huge factor. Um, But I did have the sort of touchstones of being comfortable around agriculture with that background. Cause I would I'll go back as a child, you know, my parents had strong relationships there in Bavaria on this farm and we would go and, you know, spend time there. Um, but I was always drawn to food and um, eventually to agriculture. You know, the initial pull for me was the ability to help my family. Uh, my mom would often get really like overwhelmed and anxious with cooking. And I am somebody where I can keep all the plates spinning, you know, like I'm just good with managing a lot of different tasks. And I, I love taking care of people. I love like nurturing people and, and um, that kind of cooking brought that together. So I started like doing my family's Thanksgiving when I was maybe like 10 or 11, like tiny, um, because oh, I just, wow. it. I could just handle it. I could handle the stress and I could keep everything moving and, so it kind of played this functional role where I was just really into it because it was this sort of like little, you know, you discover when you're a kid, you have like one or two superpowers. And that was like one of my superpowers where I was like, oh, I'm good at this. And and it makes my family happy. It keeps my mom calm. And um, it was just, and my grandma was a really good cook and she um, loved to put on big events. I learned a lot from her. So they're just like, I kind of had like culinary urge, but, you know, I pursued it in professionally and I, you know, took a year off of college and worked as a baker and um, as a chef and I kind of realized that I didn't love the, I didn't want to work in a kitchen. Uh, I didn't want to be a, a, a cook or a chef. And part of it was just cultural. It's a kind of a crummy environment for women. The work hours are pretty terrible. Um, honestly, you get harassed all the time. It just wasn't my jam. Um, and I also didn't like that it was, um, the food was pretty, like, the real story with restaurants, unfortunately, and I know this from operating them, my biggest problem is my cost of goods in my restaurants because we use no canola oil, no soy, no GMO ingredients. We use all of our own really expensive meat and it kills me. We can barely make money because of the cost of ingredients. So the real sort of uh, ugly truth with restaurants is that you can really, you know, you're sort of squeezed, right? Especially if you're operating in California, your labor costs are through the roof. Um, your rent costs are extremely high. So the only kind of place where you can give and capture margin is in ingredients. So I've sort of found that early on where I was like, I don't really feel great about the quality of food that I'm making. And I was really drawn to the ag side of it. So I actually took um, off after college. I moved to uh, Europe. I started working as a cheesemaker. And this is like in 1999. So, you know, I moved to Europe with like a, I had a folding bicycle, and I had a, a carry-on bag and I moved there and I came back seven years later and I worked in dairies. I, there was like no cell phone. I went there with traveler's checks. It was like, I had like, <laughs> like I had this fire where I'm like, let's just get over there. You're going to learn stuff. And um, it was amazing. It was an incredible experience. I just learned how to cook and how to live and how to eat. And my health got radically better. You know, I, I left in 99. I was a athlete in college and I was, um, you know, paid attention to what I ate, but the whole world then was like no fat. Um, so mm-hmm. I moved to Europe and all of a sudden I'm eating like two pounds of cheese a day and salamis that are like more fat than lean. And I was 
feeling amazing, you know, just like everything in my body got better. And I thought, okay, this is great. Like I, I want to, I want more of this, you know? So I ended up just staying there um, until I was almost 30. Um, and I, by the end, you know, I worked as a cheesemaker physically actually making cheese for about a year. And then I became the effectively like marketing director for a consortium of cheesemakers, like a group of cheesemakers in Sicily. So an extremely rural part of Italy learned Italian fluently, was working in Italian. At that point, I was recruited to base, to, to um, Northern Italy uh, to run a, the micro, a, sort of a microfinance fund for small-scale food producers. Um, so we made little grants and investments in lots of kind of small-scale food producers and helped them develop like com- regulatory compliance for the European Union. So that was, so my, my gig went from hands-on cheese making to like much more of the kind of planning and operational side of things, um, which is really where my career has grown uh, into. Uh, but it, it's just, the magic for me was just learning that you could get optimal health with an optimally simplistic diet, you know, like that the simplicity and eating seasonally and eating from the land and of the region just fostered amazing energy and health. And so that kind of putting those pieces together has really lit my fire for like the next, you know, the next phase in my career, which eventually led to Bill Kimpo. Yeah, that's that's such a beautiful trajectory. And I had I have not heard your origin story. So thank you for that, because I did not expect to hear that you were making cheese and uh, living out in Europe. That's incredible. I feel like for breakfast almost every day. I'm like, I think cheese is the original superfood. It's so good. Um, I think if you're genetically, there's definitely people that are less, you know, I'm European origin. So it's probably better for me genetically, but like, especially the hard cheeses, like a Parmesan cheese, that's just like, to me, it's just, it's like God's protein bar. It's just right there for you. It's so healthy. uh, It's so incredibly high in protein. It's just a superfood. And it's, it's so durable too. I mean, you can, you can just put it in your bag. Like it's, it's an amazingly, I mean, this is what people, this is what like basically peasant culture developed as their energy bars. You know, the need for functional on the go nutrition isn't new. Right. Um, But we've sort of abandoned the functional on the go nutrition of the past. It was dried meat and it was, it was hard cheese. Yeah. Things like pemmican, which was like maybe one berry, a decent amount of fat and a bit of meat dried and rolled together like it versus now you have you know 50 ingredients in one bar none of which you would have gathered together with pea protein and all this other nonsense and a ton of preservatives and sugars um we've lost a lot of the old world i think for me i first took a deep dive when i was fighting into nutrition through paul check and then nourishing traditions was a book that just turned me on my head because i was like damn <laughs> We have lost so much from the old world, so much of that slowing yeah. down, uh, taking our time, even with how we how we consume plant matter, for that matter, you know, like how, how we process these things where there was an inherent knowing before we understood lectins or any of that stuff. Hey, we need to strip some of this stuff off. We need to soak and drain, soak mm-hmm. and drain. And we need to go back and forth with this before we, you know, so much more went into preparation. And I think mm-hmm. as life has sped up, we are consistently looking for ways to grab something that's convenient or to cook in a hurry. And obviously with microwave food and things like that and, and all the snacks in the snack aisles, the majority of the grocery store is in the aisles, not in the refrigerator section. So there's a, there's a lot that's changed there. Um, I want to dive into some of the ways that you've slowed down in terms of um, because you're not just you know running a farm and restaurants. You also have a love affair with culinary arts and cooking. And 
some of the things that I've loved hearing you talk about and having first experienced your cooking over at our friend Justin Resvani's house back in LA, I was like, oh, wow, I've never experienced any of these cuts of meat in this way. I've never cooked anything properly, to be honest, like <laughs> unless it was in New York or some of these. You know. person to cook for. <laughs> <laughs> Such gusto. It's like it's a, it's a, I, like I would love to cook for you anytime. Oh, thank you. Um, but like people who are like open and try stuff and enjoy it, you know. Hell yeah! But um, yeah, I want to dive into some of the recipes and and the knowledge that you you really provided on the second podcast we did with Max Lugavere. But first, let's talk a bit about the farm because, um, you know, we are at a point now in the world where we see a. a you know, a further divide, obviously that's political, but I mean, you know, with the way we consume food and the way we grow our food, and we know this through monocropping and big agriculture and all the chemicals being sprayed in the ground. And I often think of, uh, you know, the beginning of interstellar where they've, they've, they're now in the future and they can grow one, one style of corn and it needs chemical fertilizer, chemical pesticides, because all the soil has been ruined. Um, and as I started diving into soil, first with the, the book, The Soil Will Save Us, which we'll link to in the show notes, and then documentaries like The Biggest Little Farm and Kiss the Ground, we really see this mm-hmm. the, the awareness, consciousness expanding to restore the land and understand that. So talk a bit about what regenerative agriculture is and what you guys are doing at Belcampo that makes a difference, not only for the animals and our bodies, but for the soil and the earth itself. The health of the food we eat starts from the health of the soil. And the health of the soil starts from carbon availability in the soil. A higher carbon availability in the soil um, increases the richness of the microbiome of the soil, just like our guts and ourselves, like every system maps in the same way. The soil has a microbiome and that microbiome is actually bacteria, but it's also like nematodes and tiny little organisms that, that thrive and live off of rhizomes of, and little tiny shreds and bits of, of um root systems. In traditional agriculture, like the way that we practice at Belcampo, our root systems for our perennial grazing crops are 30 feet deep, right? So there's 30 feet of, of root systems, of a rich microbiome. This is an environment that's not getting tilled or disrupted ever, right? That every year is sequestering carbon and that carbon is like the food, right? It's like the sugar for the bacteria. Effectively, it facilitates life, right? So we think of carbon as this negative. We want We don't want an environment, but the reality is the soil needs it and the soil then cleans it and converts it into a life force for plants. Industrial agriculture is relying on kind of two major bummers for soil, right? And the first is tilling. And tilling is just the annual destruction of the root systems of plants. All of the plants that we grow commercially can reseed naturally, right? Tomato doesn't produce tomatoes because it wants you to enjoy tomatoes. It produces tomatoes so that there's something appealing for animals to eat and deposit it, their seeds in a package of manure that then can turn into next year's crop. Not saying that that's a realistic way to reseed a tomato crop, but we grow, I mean, for example, artichokes are a classic perennial crop. We grow them annually, even crops that are really, you know, for, for centuries have been farmed as perennials, as multi-year crops we now grow annually because you can get a big burst of production by putting a lot of, you know, focus on one year of, of fertility as opposed to long term. So we till annually. The annual tilling disrupts this um, root system. And then the second piece of it is we use pesticides and, and herbicides. Those pesticides and herbicides, we focus as, you know, the modern farmer focuses on what they do above the soil. So above the soil, the pesticide kills all the bugs that are eating that delicious sweet corn. 
The problem is that below the soil, the pesticides also kill all the little micro animals that support healthy root systems and micronutrients in the soil. So when you read those studies about why, you know, everyone's like, oh, broccoli used to have way more, you know, you, you've seen those studies, right? That, you know, everything, every every crop that we have, that's why we need to supplement in today's world. Like, because every crop we have has far less nutrition than it used to have 30, 40 years ago. There's a lot of great studies about that. You can Google it or link to it. Um, and, and everyone's like, oh, it's because we, of the way we farm, but we're not exactly, you know, clear on the why. And the why is actually because we're farming on impoverished soil. When you farm on impoverished soil, same thing as if you eat an impoverished diet, it's difficult to achieve a vibrant health, right? If you farm on impoverished soil, you cannot achieve high micronutrient density and the, the potential of the vegetable or whatever crop you're growing. So we are killing the micronutrient density of the soil. And we're doing that through this mix of breaking, continually disrupting it, and also using chemicals on it that actively kill um, the, the pesticides, kill the microbes, et cetera. And then the, you know, the herbicides will kill the whole micro root system as well. So that those two processes. So why do we do that? Well, it's, it's a real, um, it's a real conundrum because there's always a short-term and a long-term gain. I think about it as like, okay, I have like an insane day tomorrow, Kyle. So I'm going to just like drink like 15 highballs and effing crush it. And you're like, awesome. Um, you'll have a great day tomorrow, but Saturday is going to be a bummer, right? <laughs> um, you're going to feel terrible the next day. Um, and you probably won't recover till Tuesday, right? As opposed to like, I'm going to go to bed at seven. I'm going to get up early. I'm going to get some movement and some light in the morning and try to stay really like in my zone and focused all day. Will I achieve as much? Probably not. Will Saturday be a great day? Yeah. Right. So there, that's the kind of thinking about it. It's like a short term and there's, there's parallels for this throughout nature. You know, like the, the biggest tool people think I often get kind of the question of like, well, if your animals are so healthy, how come they don't grow as fast? Because growing fast is a sign of health. And I say, well, actually obesity is unhealth. Right. <laughs> but for example, the way you get chickens to lay eggs so quickly is you force starvation. They go through what's called forced molting, which is starvation cycles. Um, you know, the, the, the nearness to death in females increases fertility, right? Because um, in, in our case, our lifetimes as females in the human species now negate that function. But we have that too, right? So we, as a female, if you're faced with starvation, you'll actually start to, to ovulate a lot and produce mm -hmm. a lot of eggs. So you'll, um, you'll get into this. And then, of course, there's a tapering point at which, you know, you lose your cycle and those kind of things and you won't actually be that fertile. But there's that you can ride that wave. So we do this in all these species, like these short term, like pressures to produce. Same thing goes with, you know, tree crops. If you have, you'll, you see this if you grow in your garden, you know, there's ways to actually force productivity through unhealth. Um, so we, we work these systems. And then we also, you know, deplete the micronutrients of the soil. And then we add nitrogen based uh, fertilizers to the soil. And those fertilizers are, you know, really petroleum based. Um, they're extractive and they don't increase the density of soil health. It's like a layer of it's like giving sugar to a kid, right? It's like it'll add the little pop, but it's not going to actually create any long-term health in the soil. It's not going to increase the richness of the soil. And that's just simply that it's not part of the natural system. So it has a sort of a mimicking effect of, of there is, but it isn't actually the nitrogen that's produced naturally in the soil from carbon is a much slower cycle. And it'll have a lot of positive benefits in the entire cycle of its production in the soil. If you add nitrogen to the crop, it doesn't have that that multi-layer effect. And so the, the soil is left after that nitrogen more impoverished than before. 
So it's the more that I, in my journey as running, you know, a farming operation and, you know, to be clear, I'm, I'm not a farmer and I really oversee primarily, you know, the product brand and the, the marketing of the business and building the, the concept of it. But in my journey of what I've seen in the, in the growth of Belcampo is like every choice that I make for quality is a choice that's anti-economic and it's hard. You know, every choice I make, think about that. Like every time I'm like, I want to do the better thing from an animal wellness, animal, you know, um, health, planetary wellness and taste perspective, it's always worse <laughs> for the bottom line. So that's the challenge in this. Like these practices take way longer and they're more expensive. So that's really the why of why. We're, and it's not that they, they're more expensive if you look at the whole picture, Right. Um, but unfortunately, we look at just one vector of cost. Right. So along that one vector of cost of actually dollars that it takes to raise a cow, dollars that it takes to raise a chicken, the way I raise a chicken takes five times as long as a conventional chicken. Every day, a chicken's alive costs me money. It takes five times as long. If I was to do it in a very, very traditional way, it will take 25 times as long. Wow. I have to be able to charge 25 times. I just can't, right? So we sort of settle at a midpoint and I still sell a, like a, a chicken that's $25 for chicken. You know, people laugh at me like you're laughing all the way to the bank, Anya. And I'm like, no, this is my lowest margin product. We're barely eking by on this. So it's a real challenge because the doing things the right way costs a heck of a lot more and it's a long-term mentality, right? And unfortunately, the short term is just more, it's, a, it's more costly. Yeah, I, that, that's a beautiful answer, and I and uh, I like especially online because of the the delay, the tape delay. Um, I like serving softball pitches, <laughs> so you just take it and run with it as long as you want. There's no, I got no issues with that. Um, Dol Salatine, who is in Food Inc. and runs Polyface Farms, he was on Rogan's and he talked about that that cost. You know, Rogan was like, "Yeah, but the cost, the cost, the cost," and he said, yeah. "You know, we're we're really only looking at that." price tag that we see at the store or online and we're not thinking about the cost of our health in general you know there there's no doctor that's gonna i mean unless they're functional medicine and they understand health and wellness from a dietary perspective and a holistic perspective not many people are going to connect the dots on the cost of your health how much does it cost for medication how much does it cost to uh you know scrape by with disease because you're in a diseased mm -hmm. state from not putting the right food in your body, not getting enough light, not getting enough sleep, right? And a lot of these yeah. things we can control, like it costs me nothing to go to bed on time. And, and that's, so that's cool. I can just get to bed on time. And maybe if I need a little help, there's other things that I can do to work with that. But really we're, we're paying a bit more upfront to make sure I don't have those high costs at the end of my life, to make sure I don't have those high costs now with disease and with issues running into um, all that comes from, from not putting good things in my body and not taking care of myself. But even just from like a performance standpoint, which is really why I started learning about health and wellness and diet and nutrition, how I feel on a day to day, it matters what goes into my body. It's not just, you know, people used to do the, the, the kind of cookie cutter analogy of, well, would you rather put a hundred octane in the tank or 76 in the tank? You know? And it's like, yeah, all right, I get that. But it goes, it goes so much further than that. Everything is affected by what we eat from the neurochemistry to organ function, to skin, eye health, you name it. Like how I think, how I feel, how I operate, it actually does matter. And for every supplement on the market, I used to talk about that. There's no nootropic or no amount of caffeine 
that will dig you out of a hole from not sleeping well. And, and there's, Absolutely. yeah. And there's, there's no supplement that's going to give you the energy to counteract a shit diet. You know, if you're, you're constantly mm-hmm. cramming dead food into your body and thinking that you can just take, you know, an energy drink or a little bit more B12 or any of these other things that are going to rid you of the, the overload that you have, um, that's just not money well spent. So ditch 90% of that and, and put it into your diet and then you'll see the results and then you can fine tune and, and tweak around that. Um, yeah, I think too, a lot of, for, for women in particular, so much around the beauty industry is like fixing you from the outside in. <laughs> and I think for, for women in particular that are so squeamish about meat, it's like collagen is just the mat. And yeah, you can get it in a supplement, but we know that bioavailability is far better when you have it in meat. And it's amazing to me that there isn't a little bit more consciousness that like, I always get questions of like, what's your skincare regime? And I'm like, I don't have one. I just eat like a ton of collagen and a ton of meat. And it really does. I mean, I've noticed it in my, the tensile strength of my skin when I drop off that regime and when I pick it back up for whatever, like when I'm traveling, et cetera, you know, just the things even like the, this is definitely what I noticed when I first moved to Europe and, and, and just by the nature of living on animal farms adapted effectively like a keto diet and a really high animal protein diet. Like I, I immediately all this stuff that had worked me from a totally aesthetic perspective, you know, everything from like split ends to split nails, to cavities to, you know, acne, dry skin. Like I haven't had dry skin in 20 years. And in my youth, I thought that was just part of who I was. And I didn't realize it was entirely diet related, you know? So it's like, it's an amazing, there's just so much that you can. And I also think too, it's like, the reason that we take care of aesthetics, the reason we do it is because we are, uh, they're indicators of internal health, right? So the whole system now coaches us to put on makeup and do things to ourselves on the outside that give a parvance of excellent internal health, right? And we don't think about the other way, which is like beauty is supposed to be an indicator of your vitality and fertility, right? Effectively for your mate. And we're being coached to like, I mean, this is since the dawn of time women have done this, but it's like, there should be a thing of saying like, it, what you're actually trying to create is this like, this sense of vibrancy and vitality. So actually be vibrant and vital through your diet. Like there's a different way of thinking about it. And you can still do all the other things. You can still wear makeup. I still wear makeup and stuff like that. You know, it's not like I'm saying be austere, but it's like, if you want those indicators of health, try just being healthy. You know, as opposed to just like, you know, the thing with the nails is that reason that I think psychologically women are obsessed with nails is that nails are an amazing indicator of health, right? Spots in your nails, flaking your nails, those are indicators that you have a poor diet. Um, And so I, you know, you look at the way women take care of their nails now, it's all about sticking things on top of their nails to make them look like they're giant claws. Like I can take the freaking paint off the walls with my nails, right? Because I drink like a quart and a half or two of bone broth every day, but I never really thought about it that way. You know, it's always like, well, put paint on your nails or go to these, you know, chemical toxic salons where they do all the stuff to you to make them look better that actually impoverish them. So it's like kind of a bigger metaphor for how we do everything where we're just more obsessed with the way it's appearing on the outside, making the outside shell look like something and neglecting that there's a way to pivot that, to think about how do I turn the inside towards that projection or towards that goal? Yeah, that's so beautifully stated. It just reminds me of the as above, so below, as within, so without. You know, we think about that with our own microbiome and the microbiome of the soil, but also our our internal systems, when they're vibrant and healthy, that's expressed externally. And and yeah. we, we do see a lot of people who look fucking awesome and they can't get pregnant. 
you know, they need help. I have lots of friends too. And it's, I'm not, there's no blame there. It's just the current state of where we're at. And it's so much about aesthetics, but if we think about how we heal from the inside out and collagen too, and and bone broth, by the way, like for everybody who has survived on a shitty, sad American diet, like I did for the first 30 years of my life, what better way to heal the gut than to go right in with bone broth and allow that to heal the gut. Everybody's worried about which probiotic do I take and uh, what kind of kefir is good. Look, They're all good, but start by fixing the actual structure of the intestines. Start there. And, and bone broth also, is so good at that. You can, bone broth is the, the, the gateway and you can, that's what I do is like my hack, right? But the other thing that you get an enormous amount of collagen from skirt steak, um, from any braised meat, like a braised chuck or braised lamb shoulder, um, you know, chicken soup made traditionally with a whole chicken carcass, incredible sources of collagen. So, you know, you can get, there is, there's, we've, we also, I think that we, bone broth has been this magic breakthrough because it has such an immediate transformative effect. That's actually for my company. When I started in 2012, you know, I was selling spleens and guts and kidneys and I was in Marin, California. It was just a mess. Like we weren't, we weren't finding our people. Right. And so we pivoted towards more of a gourmet, positioning for the brand like you know wow everybody with our pork shoulders and these big beautiful steaks which we still do but we weren't able to really embrace wellness until my bone broth started to take off and the reason why is i started to get these customers who were like recovering from cancer recovering from childbirth recovering from whatever you know even like a broken bone and they would come in and they'd be like no this changed my life and i started to get calls like from the local hospital in marin county saying we have so many patients that have had these really powerful experiences after cancer with your bone broth. Can we, you know, figure out a way to work together? So it was all of a sudden like this whole health piece, which is amazing because it aligned with where I was coming from. But bone broth has this, it's like you just pour something into a desert, right? There's like such a, a total absence of that. But when, now that I'm, you know, looking at it kind of more holistically, it was great for my business. But now I also want to coach people saying, you can get bone broth from so many connective tissue rich steaks. You can also get it from braising. And you can also, you know, there's, there's you know, it's in really, really present in marriage. Marrow. You know, marrow is this amazing cocktail of just fat and collagen. Um, and so there's lots of ways to get it because basically, you know, c- collagenous um, tissue surrounds any muscle in its. So any muscle has a sheath that's made out of this collagenous tissue. And there's a fine sheath that surrounds it that allows muscles to slide. So if I, if, well, you'd be more impressive if you flex, but if you flex, there's a bunch of muscles that are like seizing up and they're next to each other, right? And they slide, they don't stick to each other, right? They move independently. That's how our arms move and things. And so those sheaths are made out of collagen. So when we braise, we basically allow those sheaths to disintegrate and turn back into their components. Then there's another major place where we have collagen, which is in the, the tendons and um, and sinew in the body are also made out of collagenous tissue. So in actually, even when when you're pregnant, your fetus, uh, its bones will be initially a, a collagenous matrix that calcifies. So there's actually collagen embedded in bones as well, which is why we get it in bone broth. So collagen is just throughout the animal's body. So we get it out of the bones. Um, and it's a great you know thing for us too, because those are bones that in the start of the business, I was paying people to remove for me. Now I can turn them into money. But I also, which is important when you raise things the way we do, we got to kind of extract value out of every single part. But um, the other, as a, as a user and as a cook, you can, you can look at everything as an opportunity for collagen. And I actually think that that's a, people kind of think about 
um, as like, oh, this is indulgent and it's fatty. Like you look at cuts that are like more exciting and less exciting because of fat content. I would encourage you to look at cuts really from a, access to collagen content um, because they, you know these striated muscles like ribeyes and New Yorks and stuff. They're delicious. They're very easy to cook. Um, they're they're fun. We know how to we we know how to handle them as Americans, right? Um, but that they don't actually have but they have basically no collagen because it's just one single large muscle. Uh, so if you look at the opportunity to things like shoulders in all animals have lots of different muscles that move side by side, lots of complex joint structures, there's a huge opportunity for collagen in that. So that's why I, I'm always like kind of looking at my diet on a weekly basis. It's like, I, I want, you know, the majority of my meat to have a rich collagenous content. Um, as much as just the deliciousness and the protein. And the collagen is crucial to extracting your glutathione as well. So you actually can better metabolize glutathione, which is the master amino acid in meat, when you have available collagen in your diet at the same time. So it allows you to take the superpower nutrition out of meat, you know, Um, so it allows you to extract that, metabolize that. Um, as well as in and of itself being a great protein. Yeah, you increase increase bioavailability of everything through that. Yeah, I, I, I want to ask you, you know, let's let's just jump right in. How do we, <laughs> this is going to sound, uh, <laughs> well, I'm just going to say it. I'm a little embarrassed to say, but I can cook New Yorks and ribeyes pretty well. I have no idea how to braise meat. Can we talk about which what we would cut? You know, I've, I've done pork shoulder, pork butt in a crock pot, whole chicken in a crock pot. That's pretty easy. Um, what are some of the methods you use in the oven? I mean, I, I mean, it seems like any, especially in Texas, it's like if you're, you can smoke low and slow, if you got the big smoker or the Traeger or these things, then I get that. But, um, if I'm not grilling, I really, or crock potting, I really have no idea what the fuck to do in the kitchen. Totally. So we'll start off with, you know, with collagen, with any cut that you're braising, um, you can soften it and make it available to your gut by the addition of water, right? So collagen is soluble in water. So the active braising is simply taking tough sinewy collagenous tissues and slowly liquefying them in abundant water. That's what we do when we braise. Every other part of braising is about adding flavor. Um, smoking also can can tenderize, but it won't fully eliminate them. So if you were to smoke, smoke something with a, you know, you can you can cut around it afterwards, but you're not going to get that same access. I have to say too, I am I'm, I need to do more in this, but as a consumer of all kinds of meat all the time, I, I have some doubts about, you know, in general, I try to limit the amount of smoked meat and preserved meats I eat because I'm made of meat and I don't want to stop my natural microbiome and natural degradation processes in my gut. Right. So I just in general recommend like smoked meats are awesome. They're delicious. I love them, but it's something that I try to consume in balance um, because in just like any preserved meats, I don't want stuff that's like my tissue that has stopped on its journey of degradation and evolution to be in my body. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah, to like, yeah totally. It's like, I, that's like why I don't eat much lunch meat. I mean, every once in a while, salami, uh, it's fine. Absolutely. Especially things that are on a natural product, but the smoked meats, I, I really feel it in my gut too. When I eat it, um, I also have a tendency to, to eat a lot of it because it usually has sugar on it. It's got that kind of cocktail of stuff. Um, but it's the kind of thing where you eat it and you're actually like, wow, I just put a bunch of like stuff that's very genetically similar to me, but that's not allowed to biodegrade into my body. It's going to be tough on my system. 
Um, braising, on the other hand, I find makes everything more bioavailable. And in general, you know, the ways you can cook are hot and fast, which is well suited for very tender muscles, right? Um, and or you can cook a lot of things hot and fast and cut them in a way that facilitates tenderness, right? So you can cook any cut of meat, like this is what they do in most of Asia, cook any cut of meat hot and fast and then cut it very thin against the grain and mix it with a marinade or something afterwards. That's the typical way of cooking there. So there's ways to handle that. But typically, hot and fast is best suited for the, the American favorites of a New Yorker ribeye. The other way is like a low and slow dry heat which will not work on liquefying any of your collagenous connective tissue. It's not going to work as well for like a lamb shoulder or a chuck or something because it'll just slowly dry out um, those collagenous tissues. But it's very good for large, leaner cuts of meat without a lot of connective tissue. Uh, that's what you do for like a, or just, or large fattier cuts of meat without much connective tissue. So that'll work great for like a ham, a large single cut of meat from the leg of the animal. It'll work well for a top round, um, which is, you know, a similar similar position of meat from the from the beef so those things will that low and slow dry heat works well for big cuts that are not made up of many small muscles the majority of the animal is made up of tons of little muscles shoulders shanks all those i mean the shoulders also called the chuck or the picnic right so there's lots of different cuts names for these cuts those cuts what we're going to be doing typically what i recommend is uh depending on the size of the animal you can braise it whole and something like a lamb shoulder, which is very, very flavorful and delicious, I will simply put that in water, heat it up to a low simmer, and I'll cook it for three to six hours in moisture, low and slow, and add aromatics about halfway through. So I'll add chili and garlic and bay and paprika and anything else that appeals to me to that to add flavor. And then I'll cool that, skim off the fat, and it'll be a pulled meat. The other way to braise it's a little bit faster is to cut the meat up into smaller pieces so that you increase the surface area to volume ratio. So if I take that same lamb shoulder, instead of tossing it in a pan, covering it with water and just hanging out for three to five hours, whatever that ends up being until it's truly tender and liquefied. If I cut it smaller, I increase the surface area to volume ratio. So there's more surface through which the water can penetrate. So it can have access to that collagen and liquefy that collagen just more efficiently, right? So I can cut that braising time down to like an hour right? The other key part of braising that many people love to do, myself included, time permitting, is to sear it first. And the reason we sear it first, in that case, I'll take suet. I cook mostly with suet in my kitchen, which is just a rendered beef tallow. Um, You can also use ghee. I wouldn't recommend butter because it's got a lot of compounds in it that can burn. But you get some nice high heat fat up hot and then sear the chunks of, of this collagenous tissue rich meat in it and you'll get it brown on all sides then add your liquid the reason we do that that's like in a coca van you do that with a pieces of chicken a beef bourguignon it's very typical for like european braises it adds mouthfeel and interest right so instead of things getting pulled and just being big soft fibers of meat which is delicious but more applicable for like a taco or something than just like a main bowl um then i'll i'll simply um i'll just sear that into chunks and then it retains these nice little moist chunks of meat in your final product that's the kind of matrix that you can do to anything now the key thing though is that moist cooking right like doing something like uh 
uh, the braces I was just talking about, it has to be high collagen. That's a comment I get all the time of like, I made a braise like what you put on Instagram, but it was super dry. And I'm, well, what cut did you use? Top round. And it's like, well, there's no connective tissue. So all you're doing is just drying the heck out of some striated muscle. Same thing goes with like a chicken breast. That's going to be a terrible braise. Um, those are those those long um, striated muscle fibers simply dry out and become stringier and stringier. So if I am braising a whole chicken, for example, I'll pull the I'll sear the breasts, pull them out, and then add them at the very end and just poach them because that that fiber of that muscle doesn't actually respond well to moisture because it does not have enough collagen in it. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. Well, you're, you're, I'm, you're getting my, my wheels turning to get creative there and try some new things. Um, speaking of new things, I get a lot of questions around organ meat and a lot of people are, are averse to it. I've, uh, you know, I've, I've tried just about everything with our mutual friend, Paul Saladino. I think, in fact, he brought over a, a Rocky Mountain oyster to Aubrey's house the other day and we had that raw. It, was, it wasn't as bad as I suspected, but he likes a lot of things raw and, uh, you know, raw, raw liver is okay. Raw kidney is pretty damn tough to take down. What are some of the ways that you prepare organ meat? Because, you know, I've spoken quite a bit about this on this podcast, the benefits, the bioavailability, how do we make these the most bioavailable and how do we make these the most palatable? Yeah. So that's a great question. They, you know, let's talk about it by organ. Okay. Cause they're, they behave differently. Um, in the case of liver, the best trick for palatability is to barely cook it. And it's a little bit anathema for the American consumer to hear that because you're like, oh, my God, but it's so dangerous, right? So think about it. The reason that liver is dangerous now or can, we perceive it as being dangerous is that we are accustomed in America to products that perform well in our supply chain. Our supply chain is predicated on things being able to be frozen and shipped long distances and stored and refrozen and et cetera, right? The organs are extremely delicate. They have no striated muscle. They're just little blobs of fat and soft, soft threads of connective tissue that hold them together. So they're like little clouds that are suspended within the animal. They perform terribly in uh, the modern system. So what happened is when things really industrialized in the 50s and 60s, when these products were commercialized, they were awful and they developed lots of really bad flavors. And in fact, you know, when you, if you get liver from Belcampo, it should be, you know, it comes off the animal, it goes into the freezer and it's shipped to you and all that happens, you know, pretty rapidly. It's like within a week or two, right? Um, in, in many small quality producers, like I'm sure who Paul brought the Rocky Mountain Oyster from, like a lot, that's how smaller operators work. In bigger systems, when you have a thousand animals being killed a day in a huge plant and buckets of liver accumulating and moving into the cold chain quickly, but they're having to be doused with different, you know, lactic solutions and bleach solutions to ensure sanitation, the product handling is just not there. And then that little soft organ just can't take it. They can't be taken, thrown into a bucket. You know, like they're very, very delicate. So the first thing is to start with sourcing, right? And then once you're sourcing, well, you're paying more and assume that what you're paying for it with that extra dollar or two that you're spending on that per pound on that liver is the security to cook it to optimal deliciousness, not the fear that causes you to cook it to the point where you're sure that any potential pathogens are dead. Mm. And that's freedom, right? Yeah. That's a that's freedom to be able to cook to things being awesome tasting, not having to cook to the point of like killing all the E. coli, right? I mean, think about it. Like if we were expected, like for let's say even apples at home, like oh, gotta cook this to one hundred and sixty because there might be E. coli on it. 
People would think that was crazy, but somehow we've accepted that with meat, right? And I know that the risk factors are higher. It's a little bit of an extreme example I give to make a point, but broadly our mentality around meat, you know, or imagine if it was like, oh yeah, any, any cucumbers you need to wash in like a light chlorine solution because there's likely to be something. Yeah. Okay, cool. But that's what we've done with meat. We're just like, great. We're here for it. No problem. We'll over, and I get all these emails from people. Why, why do you say to cook your turkey to 150, uh, you know, Thanksgiving? instead of 165, or I say 145 to 150, I'm like, because it's the most delicious. It's like, yeah, but why does the USDA say 165? And I'm like, because they'd like you to kill, to be sure that you're killing any salmonella. I would like you to be sure that there wasn't any salmonella to begin with, yeah. right? So thinking about the liver, it's everyone's overcooking it because in the industrial system, that product is more likely to be a pathogen vector. You got to be really careful. And we're accustomed to overcooking it. So the key thing is to um, the, the, I, the, the consistency, I like to ensure that the middle is, is pink on the liver and that will make it much more delicious and much more palatable. Um, and that it's primarily a textural issue. The liver itself is so high in fat. Um, and it, and as I mentioned, it's got, it's got actually tons and tons of very small, very fine collagenous tissues. We were talking about how collagenous tissues don't do great with hot, dry heat. Problem is you cook the liver really hot and dry. Those collagenous tissues seize up and it's really chewy and they're there like gnawing on that liver, right? Um, and it's just not delicious. So if you can minimally sear it to ensure that those tissues are just minimally kind of, you know, holding the gel together, um, and make yourself comfortable with that experience, that's going to be a much better eating experience. Other key things with liver, salt it abundantly. Um, it, it's, it's the irony taste is counterbalanced with salt and then finish it with always with an acid. Um, and that helps with nutrient absorption um, and it also makes it much more delicious. So it's about kind of, it's not about masking the flavors, but any very flavorful meat needs more salt and more acid. So the more flavor, it's almost think about it, like you got to kind of meet it where it's at, you know? Um, it's the same reason that we wouldn't put like maple syrup on a strawberry because a strawberry has got a very mild flavor. If anything, it might be like some coconut sugar or something, right? But like, you're going to avoid, you don't put really strong or like, you're not going to put like an anchovy on, you know, something that's very, very mild, right? So you're going to go for things that are more like you'll put that on something with cheese on it. You're put, you know, you'll pair it with garlic, like you're putting strong flavors together. So with liver, you're going to want to put stronger flavors together. And do you, so for, more- for the acid, would you use something like a citrus or would you use apple cider vinegar? What, what generally would you use there? Culinarily, I love lime or lemon, okay. like a citrus on on a liver. Um, I I also like sherry vinegar. I don't like apple cider vinegar culinarily. I love to drink it, but I find that the apple leaf flavor is kind of overwhelming, and I don't really want that with the liver. Um, and then you'll notice too, you know, typically traditionally um, caramelized onions are a natural pairing with liver and that's because the strong sweetness is also a masking and meeting kind of component of it so if you wanted something like that without the without the caramelized onions you can always caramelize onions if you want that but a balsamic is also nice too because it's got that sweetness so sweet salty acid paired with that strong kind of muscular liver flavor is going to be a great way but the first step is just don't overcook it Perfect. And, Gotta go. and you guys, uh, I think Mike Salemi was telling me this. I don't know if it's, if it's still the case, but originally you guys had a dog food that was a, an organ meat blend. And then that's now just, uh, just now that's, that there's enough people that are demanding it, that you make this yeah. grind for people. Well, that we were starting to get um, like people uh, using our dog food for human food. <laughs> so I, and then I've, you know, in that case, 
leftovers from the butcher shop, right? So that we have a little bunch of butcher shops, and so those would they would use all their different grinds together. Um, but now we do do in some of our locations, we offer like a carnivore, an awful grind. Um, I'm considering it making it into a regular product. There hasn't been as much of a demand for it when I've launched it, but there's a huge demand for our liver. We have a really hard time keeping up with liver and suet demand right now. Suet's another one that's just been going bananas for us, which makes sense. Suet's like just a fantastic cooking fat. It's super inexpensive. You know, it costs like a a tenth of what ghee costs, and it's basically the same fat. It's cow fat, right? That's pure it performs really well at high heat. So I sell that unrendered um, and on our website and we just go through it like crazy. So it's like these soft little bags of fat that surround the kidney um, and you, you, and they, they're adjacent to a couple different organ packets. So in, as I mentioned, the organs are very delicate in the animal's body, just like out in the real world, there's hard parts, there's ribs, there's bones, there's pieces, right? So the suets are these little soft clouds of fat surrounded by connective tissue that that protect the organ from bumping and falling and aggression within the animal. And it's particularly soft and well adapted for cooking. So if you buy suet whole, you just put it in a pan with a little bit of water. You should try this. And then um, I, it's amazing because you cook it down low and slow, like three hours pour it off and then you have beef suet cracklings left over. So like they're little shreds of collagenous tissue with fat embedded in it. It's like a chicharron, but a beef chicharron. So I, my kids like they salt those and like smack on them. You get a lot of them. It's a lot to eat, but and they're really only good like day of, so have a party that day or something or give them away. But they're, it's like really crunchy, deep fried pieces of collagen, basically. So super healthy as well. But suet's another item. I also really recommend, I love cooking. So you'll find when you cook with suet that it's got a, a pretty pronounced scent. I actually use it for skincare as well. Um, it's really good on your skin. It's really similar to um, human um, fat too. I mean, pig fat's actually more similar, but I find the, the, the scent is a little bit much for me. But the suet, you'll put it on you, or you'll cook with it. When it's cold, you smell the strong smell from it. And then when you warm it up, though, it immediately just, it's like sort of nice and beefy. Um, it's really delicious. So it's a, it's a fantastic just way to also in, increase the you know, your animal fat in your diet, healthy animal fats. So that's what I absolutely recommend for searing your liver is to, you know, if you can get a little bit of a teaspoon of, of suet and just put that in there. Yeah, it's interesting. I have, I've only tried it with Saladino. I've only had the, the raw, you know, just cut it, cut it like a little, little, little sliver and add some I sea know. salt. And I'm, I know you don't, you're not a fan of it. I was a huge fan of it. I was, we, we went hunting okay. with Monsal and I was like, this is the greatest snack ever. I mean, I was blown away and, and really, you know, like, uh, you talk about, you know, conventional animal fat versus, you know, this traditional and, and in alignment within the sacred hoop of all the life that goes into that, you know, it's so robust and yellow and there's so much, you you can see the the, the carotenoids and the vitamin A that's in it. And it's like, wow, like this thing, it looks completely different than any fat that I've ever seen before, but it tastes incredible. I've, I've yet to render it and use it for cooking, but it's phenomenal stuff. it. Yeah, I haven't. We sell a lot of people snack on it. I, I mean, it's good, but if like of the landscape of things that I like to snack on, it's probably not the top. <laughs> um, but I don't think a piece of parmesan over that. <laughs> but I get my animal fat and all that. But you'll find I just render it and store it in mason jars in my fridge, and it'll keep for a year in the fridge. Um, and I always have one jar out on the counter at room temperature, and we cook everything in it. Um, eggs and I mean, and and really, you know, I think our suet right now is something like. 
uh, like $6 a pound, something in that zone. And for a pound, you know, you can make a pint. So you basically get a pint of like ghee quality fat for six bucks. It's a, it's a great deal as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's cheaper than olive oil, cheaper than good ghee. So I, I use it mostly for that, just calling early, but I get it as a snack too. Um, I think that the, the interesting thing about the suet, because of that collagenous matrix, you can get that. I, I have to say from a snacking perspective, I probably enjoy um, back fat more just straight up back fat um, because it has more flavor, you know, and it's been on the exterior of the meat. It's got a little bit more of that kind of pronounced beefy flavor. So in terms of like pure fat snacking, um, I think I'm probably also in a, in a place where my nutrient needs are not as extreme as yours, like in terms of like the landscape of what I'm going to snack on for nutrient. But, um, but yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a super power food too. You get that like incredible like burst of energy from it. The stearic acid in suet I've, is interesting too. You know, it has this sort of waxy coating feeling mm-hmm. in your mouth, the stearic acid. So for me, that's a little bit off-putting about eating it at room temperature. You know, it's yeah. like, the, I don't love the full waxy mouth feel. It feels like I'm kind of eating a candle. But if you warm it up and put it in your eggs, that's all just gravy. It's like you don't taste any of that and you get all the nutrients. Yeah, texture texture has been a big thing that I've been kind of, reframing my brain around from the little kid brain. I don't want to try this to like, okay, let me see. All right. I know, I understand on the back end what this does for me health wise. Let me see if I can get around yeah. it in the mouth and see if I can come to terms with it. But um, I think, I mean, two days into eating it, I was like, yeah, this is good. You talked a bit about that with Max too. This, this, um, you know, when we, when we slow cook things in a, in a crock pot or something like that, like when we do a whole chicken, how, when the collagen tissue breaks down, it gives, provides that stickiness, you know, that we would find in a stew or something, that feeling, you know, that's a different feeling and how full we get from that. Expand on that a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, collagen, um, has the benefit, right? There's all these great benefits of coating the gut, you know, so one, we say it soothes your gut. Physically what's happening is that the collagen, you know, liquefied in, in, or dissolved in, in moisture will cover the cilia that are lining your, the inside of your stomach. And since many of us are in America in a constantly inflamed state, so there's cilia, they're on the lining of your gut and those are actually engorged and they're sort of, they're not like smooth, right? So then there's fissures and, and actually in terms of disease and disease prevention, a lot of these reasons about like being in good health and resisting diseases like COVID is that when you ingest um, a virus, it can permeate your gut wall through fissures. So the more healthy your gut is, the more resistant you are to disease, the more resistant you are to gut upset, all those different things happen. So there's an analogous thing that happens like actually just within your mouth though, where it actually coats your, your, um, your you know, taste buds um, and, it, and it gives the sense of a full mouth feel. So I think about it as people, you know, I think love like bacon because of that mouthfeel of the pork fat, warm pork fat and how it coats your mouth and gives a sense of satiety and it's really gratifying. It's like the crunchiness and then all this, this, this covering of your mouth and that collagen gives you something similar, right? So it's that kind of just basically a more, if you look at the kind of holistic feelings of wellness, um, that to me is interesting. Like there's a, when we're eating a lot of foods that don't have collagen, part of the issues is like a, you're not actually ticking all the boxes that make you actually feel full, right? So when we're when we're looking at what is satiety, what is feeling full, it's not really about calories or fat, right? We've all had the experience of eating nutritionally bereft food and then eating a ton of it and still feeling hungry, right? We kind of call that like part of that's emotional eating, but it's not really. It's actually just like that that food doesn't have what it takes to make us feel full. And it's because we don't really want to eat 
just for calories. We're eating for wellness. Like we're, we're evolved to eat for wellness. We used to spend 90% of our time messing with our food, soaking it, drying it, gathering it, killing it, cutting it up. Like that used to be our, what we existed to do, right? And then every once in a while, we'd be like focusing on babies. Like that was kind of life for the majority of human existence, right? So when the reason we focus so much on it is that that's the major way that we have con- to control longevity and, and life and life quality. So when we're eating, we tend to think about when people go on a diet, it's like, oh, I'm going to limit my calories in, calories in, calories out. That's part of the picture, but it's not the entire picture. So when we're eating and we get that satiety feeling from collagen, it's not that somehow we're tricking our body. It's that our body is like, oh, we've got this fullness feeling in our mouth. We're likely consuming collagen. We can slow the roll, right? And you look at this like kind of people who have experiences of, of getting lean or, or controlling appetite like with soup, right? There's something in it. And it's, it's not that that's super so magical, but it's like, you know, when you've got a little bit of collagen in it, you trigger the satiety feeling um, in your body and you actually, and I actually do that to control. Like yesterday I had a hell of a day, you know, we're going through shutdowns and um, we're very close to another stay at home order. I had to temporarily close one restaurant, lay off people. It's a very stressful day for me. And I managed that by making chicken soup. And it was like, I ate like six little bowls of chicken soup during the day. It wasn't really emotional eating, but it's like eating for soothing and eating for also for easy satiety. Like there's some of these things too, where I'm like, okay, I don't really have time to slow my roll, drinking a cup of broth, eating soup all day long. It keeps me in even keel. I feel, I feel full enough to function, but not overly full and stuff. Like I would, if I sat down and ate a big plate of something or a bunch of vegetables that slow my roll. Um, so there's like, there's ways that you can actually use those collagenous rich foods to kind of control your emotional state. You know, and I, I also find too, when I get into a place where I feel like the edge of like the kind of cravings, that's actually when I try to eat liver or marrow, really high fat, high collagen foods. Cause I think cravings are my body being like, Oh my God, I'm a little freaked out. Like I'm going to get my cycle or whatever, you know, like trigger or hormonal thing is happening. And I try to say to my body, look at, we're fine. We got all this fat. <laughs> you got every, everything you, you need. Know, feed that micronutrient needs. So if like, if you're, that's one thing I would, this is a little bit radical, but if you're craving brownies, try liver, like try, what are you craving in that brownie? What are you craving? We are actually looking for some, a sense of security, right? And what is real security? It's like abundant animal fat, right? So you can tell your body everything's okay um, by providing that. Yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, as you're talking about that, uh, the soups and and with the, <laughs> the current climate politically and everything that's happening, um, that you know, that really is something that that resonates deeply with all of us. We all think of these comfort foods, you know, what grandma made when we were growing up, the thing that that makes us feel full and happy and, and just uh, calm, you know, at ease with the world and at ease with what we're doing in life. And the biological response that happens from eating these things is it's undeniable. There's no two ways about it. I think about that, too. You know, one of the one of the first things when I first started getting into ketogenic diets uh, and I'm not on one now, but when I first started with that, I was like, oh, this is the first time I feel like I'm not enslaved to what I'm going to eat next in two hours. Like it gave, yeah. you know, like yeah. I was just like, oh, I'm free. Like I, I can, I can eat when I need to eat and I'll look forward to eating, but I'm not constantly looking at the watch and constantly looking for a snack. And I feel the same way when I do a good crock pot, you know, like even if there's carbohydrates in it and I typically don't do well with starches, but I can put sweet potatoes in there or Japanese yams and eat them. And three hours goes by and I'm not sitting there looking for something sugary or, or a piece of fruit or anything, you know, the next bowl, I feel a sense of wholeness and wellness that's lasting. Yeah. I think any diet that you're on that 
creates a sense of deprivation is not sustainable. It's, it's, Just, a, yeah, right? it's a form of fasting. There's no two ways about it. It's yeah. meant to be done in it's short periods. Exactly. It's fine for a short thing if that's your jam. But like that sense of like, I mean, I, I feel it too with um, like I try to fast like 14 hours a day. Um, but I try to do it in a way that doesn't create a sense of deprivation because I'd like to do this forever for my life, you know, and, and, um, it's like, you got to kind of find the, find the mix of things that create that. I also think it's, it's funny too, when people say, oh, when you're doing keto, like stay away from nut butters because it's, you know, easy, difficult to control the amount that you eat. And it's like, well, I would say then instead of saying, just look at it as something that's difficult to control the way you eat. It's like, say, what is it about that? That makes it difficult. Right. And it's probably that it's not answering a broader spectrum of needs. Right. Um, so I, I sort of wonder, it's like a lot of these foods when you say, oh, it's difficult to control consumption or I overeat this. Like you're maybe not overeating it. It maybe isn't giving you a, the full bandwidth of nutrition that you need or not giving you the full experience of eating that you need. Like, you know, we all know that you eat a handful of nuts. You're like, cool, that's great. But you have a jar of nut butter. It's like it's baby food. Right. It's baby <laughs> food. That's really good. And so, you know, it's like, I, there's things that you can say, well, what is it? Is it the nutritional thing? Is it the act of like chewing and salivation and, and the full act of eating it that isn't gratifying me? So it's, it's interesting to say, to try to turn that a little bit on his head and say, instead of what is this about this that's making me overeat, say, what is it lacking that I keep eating more to try to find and I'm not getting, you know? Um, is it because I'm not chewing it? I, I think it was that, but that's probably it, right? So there's kind of like, you got to look at things critically, um, and people have this mentality, I think, of being sort of afraid of their pantry because it's this temptation zone. It's like, you know, you get got to just find stuff that that is deeply more. Look at everything from both sides of it, not necessarily that you're you have bad willpower. Maybe it isn't serving you. And what do you do differently in terms of your selection of food to get things that are actually serving your deeper nutrition right in your everyday? I love that. Well, um, talk about talk about Belcampo. Talk about what you guys are doing and. Um Anywhere people can find you guys. Yeah, we are in Northern and Southern California with restaurant butcher shops um, and encourage anyone that's a fan of quality meat just to come in, even if it's just for eye candy. They're beautiful, great products. We always have organ meats, beautiful steaks, all the things, whole chickens. And then we've got an amazing e-commerce selection online at bellcampo.com. That's something that's been just a gift of God in, in COVID is just we've gotten this huge lift on our e-commerce platform and we've added tons more organs. We have spleen now, um, which is great. So some of the really kind of unique cuts as well. Then I've got lots of cuts there. We're talking about rich collagen cuts, things like the Kanye and skirt steak I have on the website. So things that you can't really get Copa steak from, uh, which is a pork shoulder steak, amazing collagen, fat rich cut. I'm going to send you some of those. I think you'd like them. Yay. They kind of cook like, work but it's really um it's just amazing nutritionally so there's a there's a, a great range on bellcampo.com and then i also sell in a couple grocery stores in air ones and in net market up in the seattle area so that's a growing area for me is selling through grocery but the place to start is just bellcampo.com you can find out about our stores there of course we're heading into christmas right now we'll give you a, a healthy gift <laughs> discount to share with you you can get people there um, we'll, we'll do 20% off for people who are listening and can go and use a gift code. So, and then we also, it's, you know, the, the meats are seven species, right? So I raise beef, pork, lamb, chicken, geese, ducks, and turkeys. Um, I think every one of those except for geese is available on the website right now. And everything is organic certified, 
we're generatively farmed and certified humane. So we're actually third-party verified as being carbon sequestration positive. So we put carbon into the soil. We have monitored that over seven years. So you can feel super good about, you know, the purchase. Our, our product is going to be more expensive, um, typically not as like not as extremely expensive as as you might imagine but it's usually around 20 to 30 percent higher than what you'd see for a for a grocery store item yeah and you're you're, Worth it. you're getting the best no question yeah i i always laughed with you know i've told mike salemi this but the first time he sent out bone broth i was like oh this looks really good you know and i thought it and then i i was making it for for tosh while she was pregnant and I had to squeeze and knead the last part out like it was toothpaste. That's how thick it was. And yeah. I've never had bone broth this thick. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, just incredible stuff. So yeah, no, that's actually something I'm really proud of. You know, people drink bone broth for collagen, and a lot of it doesn't have the collagen because it's not made out of the right cuts. Um, and it's also difficult. You know, like these are there. It's it's a hard product to make. We've taken we developed our recipe and formulations over five years, and then. Now we've scaled it up with a different sample packaging and those different things, but it's it's a challenging product to make and ours has the highest collagen and tastes the best of any that's on the market right now. So, and I'm also gonna be launching next year a collagen enhanced bone broth. So like a bone broth with um, like a shot, I'd love to hear what you think about this, but like a shot of bone broth that's got like as much protein as two chicken breasts in a mix of natural collagen and then enhanced collagen. Oh, wow. So like a kind of idea of like a recovery drink that you would just warm up and then drink it like an eight ounce portion with tons of collagen. Cause I love that. Like I liked, I'm, I'm drinking bone broth for collagen. I'm not drinking it for like, you know, there's other good stuff in it, but that's why I want it. So I want it to deliver on that. From my perspective, I'd rather pay a little bit more, but have it have, you know, three times the collagen. Um, that's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm here for. So I try to make our product as, as thick as possible. And then, you know, we actually, we, we were, we were called out by the USDA because our collagen content was so high. They were like, this is technically a meat product. <laughs> and so they made it. I had to get it, you know, to get it co-packed because I made it in a commercial kitchen on our farm and we, the USDA, we have a USDA slaughterhouse. Like we have our own slaughterhouse adjacent to the farm. And we, brought you know the usda inspector checks out our other facilities sometimes and they were like they tested the the, the bone broth and they're like this is technically a meat because it's so high in protein because broth is not typically regulated by the usda that's incredible so i had to get to a usda plant or or there or they were like no problem you can water it down wow that's <laughs> like thanks for no thanks right yeah. so yeah that's there's like a lot of stuff with with the government regs that are like i mean it's well it's all well-intentioned right but it's like are you kidding me so yeah we had to we had to move to a co-packer because it was too high in protein. And it was like either co-pack it with a USDA plant or just add water. Well, that, that's a great problem to have. I absolutely love your stuff and I love you, Anya. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. <laughs> 